This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Hi there, it's Jonathan and Yonit. I hope you're having a good Pesach or Passover break. Um, we are bringing you conversations we have loved over uh, recent months of the podcast. And we really wanted to bring you this conversation with Rachel Maddow of MSNBC, obviously one of the country's leading uh, TV hosts, brilliant journalist. Uh, when we spoke to her, uh, she had just launched a new podcast series, which I think went on to be one of the biggest podcast series of the year in the United States, soon to be a major motion picture at the hands of no less than Steven Spielberg. It was called Ultra, and it was about Hitler's American friends. It was about fascism in America in the 1930s and 40s. Some shocking revelations. It was a gripping conversation, we thought. So here, once again, is a special guest on Unholy, Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow, host of The Rachel Maddow Show, is the face of MSNBC. She is a cable news juggernaut and really the defining TV journalist of liberal cable news in the US. Her new podcast, Ultra, is a spectacular success. It tells the story of a plot to subvert American democracy and to institute fascism in the 1940s. Uh, it really sends shivers down your spine and is eerily relevant to today. We'll discuss all this and more. And Rachel, thank you so much for talking to us today on Unholy. I'm so, so happy that you guys asked me to do this. I'm thrilled. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for saying those nice things. I'm really excited <laughs> to talk to you guys. We um, love the podcast. So we're so excited to have you on ourselves because um, it is completely riveting and tells a story that I think very few people will have known before. In fact, you make a point of how little known this story is. One of your interviewees in the show is a historian who says, if you even went down the corridor of her office in the university department, you wouldn't find more than one person who knew anything about this. You tell us how, how much you want to tell us about it, but I'm curious to know the extent to which you knew any or some or all of this story before embarking on rendering it for a new audience through this podcast. I knew the tiniest little sliver of it. And this isn't actually what I set out um, to do a podcast about. I was interested in something a little bit later on in the timeline. Um, I was actually interested in the origin of American Holocaust denial, because for all the other things that Holocaust denial is, um, for its origin points in the United States, it was just truly bizarre because it emerged at a time when, among other things, there were not only lots of refugees in this country, but there were lots of American GIs who had laid their own eyes on the direct evidence of what had happened. And Holocaust denial started early and very specifically. And there's, it turns out there are some very unusual, very personal stories about where it came from and why. And I was interested in that freak show. Um, and in trying to tell that story, I, you know, started reading and, um, and ended up getting to this backstory, which I knew a tiny sliver about. I mean, I knew I had, I had, I had done a little bit of work on, um, on a sedition trial that happened a few decades ago in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And I had been thinking about that because we have the big sedition trial around January 6th. And I had this sort of vague sense or, or semi-informed sense that, hey, sedition trials happen very rarely in the United States and they often fail. And I knew there had been something about that around World War II, but that was kind of it. 
it turned out when I started doing the kind of backstory of Holocaust denial, I ended up in the trial transcripts of the 1944 Great Sedition Trial and then trying to figure out who all these characters were. And in learning about the defendants and in particular about the Justice Department and bringing that case, I just waded into this world that I'd never heard of and that it ended up, I think it ends up being an important part of the story that none of us know it. It's an interesting and sort of deep question about what stories we tell and, and what stories we don't. Right. And, and the fact that there's never actually been a reckoning with this uh, reality, it's kind of been forgotten and, and sidelined. And the, the, I guess we'll talk about this more as this, the conversation progresses, the sort of eerie similarities between then and now. One of the striking things about this story, not only just how you know, deep the Nazi involvement in the top branches of of the U.S. government uh, during the 1940s uh, uh, was, how deep it was, but also it's kind of clear and tragic that the legal system, the criminal justice system, is really kind of, I don't know, inadequately equipped to deal with this kind of threat to national security. And I mean, that that is one of the shocking revelations about, you know, when you listen to this podcast. And I wonder if you, you feel like it's the same today in that in that regard. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the I think if the podcast could have been sort of infinite, if it had been eighteen hours instead of eight hours, this is one of the things that I, I think I would have liked to tease out a little bit. So thank so thank you for the question because I have unresolved feelings about this that I haven't really articulated yet. But I feel like the the way in which the justice system is inequipped to deal with a threat like this is multifaceted. I mean, on in one part of it, it's that you know under the Constitution we have. Uh, the right of free speech and the right of to, to associate freely. And that means you have the right to say and think horrible things and to associate with people for horrible purposes. Um, part of what's difficult about prosecuting something like this is, is that we rightfully have pr- protections to do all sorts of terrible things under the U.S. Constitution. And that just creates a, a fundamental baseline over which you, your, uh, your behavior needs to rise before it is no longer subject to those constitutional protections. Then there's a sort of, um, almost definitional problem in terms of prosecuting sedition, which is that if you are being brought up on sedition charges, it means by definition that you tried to overthrow the government and you failed because there is still a government to put you on trial for sedition. Had you succeeded, you'd have everybody else up against the wall. So by definition, the time, by, by the time you get into the courtroom, you are putting somebody on trial for having tried a plot that did not succeed. And that inherently creates an environment in which the defense can say, well, this wasn't a serious plot. This was, you know, blowhards talking. There, there was never any risk it was going to happen. But then there's also this kind of technical thing that happens in trials like this particularly when you're talking about a group that believes it is powerful enough to actually overthrow something as big and strong as the U.S. government, which is that a conspiracy to do this tends to involve a lot of people. And it's hard to put a lot of people on trial because everybody's entitled to an individual defense. And because if you get 28 defendants in the courtroom at once, you better have the world's most technically skilled judge or the court case is going to run off the rails. And that's what we saw, part of what happened in 1944. I think we're seeing right now in the Justice Department's prosecutions of the Oath Keepers and the, and the Proud Boys, they've broken up those trials into four and five defendants, maybe as an effort to try to remedy that technical thing. But there's, so there's, and, and there's more. There's probably 10 different facets on which this is difficult for the Justice Department to handle. 
doesn't mean that the Justice Department should be excused from trying to take this on. These are, in many cases, crimes. But I think there's a reason why people involved in these sort of things tend to get tripped up on other crimes um, and very rarely actually convicted on sedition, insurrection, treason, some of the, the sort of top line, almost biblical sounding crimes that um, that attend to these things. I mean, in your next question and straight away in your answer, you've got to the parallels of then and now, even in terms of how you got into this story. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should just say in, in, a, in a sentence or two, I mean, you sketch out not just this chaotic kind of zoo of a trial in 1944, but the whole world that this came out of, that there was all this this panoply of far-right, anti-Semitic, fascistic groups in America in that period that were doing, you know, tons of propagandizing to keep America out of the war against, you know, the Jews in their own country, against Roosevelt, and for a kind of totalitarian overthrow in the United States. So you even before we get to the trial, it's a chilling world you sketch. But you go out of your way. I, I, I really noticed it to not allow the listener to be simplistic about the parallels between then and now. And the bit where you do it is so interesting to me because it's this figure, Father Coglin, the big broadcaster of his day, who is on the radio just pumping out really vile and particularly anti-Jewish stuff, massive following, tens of millions of listeners. And I think you're almost addressing your regular listeners and viewers there and saying, it will be easy to draw a direct line from this person to the talk show hosts of today. But be careful with that, because what he's doing is, in a way, I think you say, effectively so much worse, what Coglin did. It's not just, it's not Sean Hannity. It's not Tucker Carlson. It's a whole other level of hate, etc. People who know something of your story, that's fascinating as well, because you began as a guest, a contributor, I think, on Tucker Carlson's show, and it was on MSNBC. So maybe there's a, a still a friendship there or whatever. But I think there's a bigger reason why you're going out of your way to not allow there to be that easy link. So what, what, what is that thinking? I, I think in part because of my job, because people are used to seeing me talking about current events. Whenever I talk about historical things, I think there's a tendency for people who know me or even who just know me by reputation to think that I'm speaking in code about today. Um, and so, and occasionally, you know, I am speaking about today, but I try to be explicit when I'm doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. the thing about history is that it doesn't repeat. Um, it does rhyme. And so it's worth okay. being precise about where there are parallels and where there are not. And I think what is partly relevant about Coughlin, or more relevant about Coughlin than any analogy we can draw between him and some figure, some popular figure in right-wing media today, is actually not about him, but about the size of his audience. Like the thing that's important to me about Coughlin is not that uh, j- just that he was influential, or just the content of his uh, anti-Semitic and, and radical right-wing violent um, urgings to his audience. It was that so many Americans loved it and were hanging on his every word. The parallel is not Coughlin. The parallel is us. Um, and mm-hmm. what we should worry about when we look at that example is not who's that guy today, but how are we? how is it that we are the country who thinks of ourselves as united and willing to sacrifice and travel the high seas to go take on fascism abroad as a, a, a in our greatest you know greatest generation's moment of leadership to go tackle nazism while the largest media audience ever assembled in american history to this day 
was listening to this guy every week who was saying the Jews deserved it. That's the parallel to make. And so I think it's easy to kind of focus on the bad guys and it's easy to, cr- to create facile analogies. And, um, you know, I'm not looking for a Trump in history. I'm not looking for a Fox News in history. I'm looking for us in history. Be- because one of the um, poignant lines that I think jumped out at Jonathan and at me when we were listening was that fascism happens recurrently. You say that in, uh, I think it's the last episode, but really that this, this is a cycle. It's a very sad, tragic, even dark view of of America. Mm-hmm. And I think it's practical. Mm. The, the bases of a sort of fascist appeal in the United States are consistent, right? That there is a glorious past that it would be great if we could return to. In that glorious past, we didn't have this alien or parasitic element that had ruined everything. If we could expunge them, we could return ourselves to our former glory. And part of what's in the way is that those parasites and alien elements get a say in what's happening in our country. And we ought to organize ourselves so that rather we can lead with our native born strength and not be infected by this weakness that's inherent in everybody getting a say in the future of the, of, of our country. We are a republic, not a democracy, right? Um, the bases of that appeal, when you sort of strip them of their exclamation points, politicians use them all the time. Conservative media figures use them all the time. It's something that has a sort of timeless appeal. I think it's our responsibility, sort of when you can see that, when you can see those sort of code words and ideas fall into place yet again, whoever the scapegoat is going to be this time, and it's almost always the Jews, and it's often people who don't have white skin, and it's very often immigrants, and it's some combination therein. When you see those things fall in the line, to me, it's a practical help to be able to say, oh, look, it's that same old song. Listen, here's what it sounded like in the 40s. Here's what it sounded like in the 1920s. Here's what it sounded like in the in the 1800s. Here's this, it's the same old thing. And that has that has two benefits. One is that I think it uh, alerts us to sort of what we need to turn on in terms of our defenses and our firewalls as a country. Uh, but I think it also makes fascism boring, which is helpful. Um, part of what, you know, the, you know, the, the number one selling book of 1940 in the United States was Charles Lindbergh's wife, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, writing a book, this like poetic book um, about how fascism was the future because it was so elegant and efficient and modernist. And it was so exciting. And while she didn't think of herself as the kind of person who'd be attracted to these kinds of leaders, she could see that this was the way we needed to adapt as a species because this was such a beautiful, shiny new way of being. Fascists always make it sound like it's transgressive and interesting and something you've never thought of before. It's boring. It's old. It's recursive. And so that to me is, um, that to me is a, is a helpful, helpful framing. And are you describing there that recurrence? Is that a a specifically peculiarly American thing or is that a human thing? Do you think? I mean, I'm, I don't know much more than uh, American politics. And so I don't feel like I can speak for other places. I do think that there is something human about being told, oh, the strong man will take care of you. And all we need is more control and the good old days. I mean, I think those are somewhat um, universal sort of human points of comfort. 
in terms of what somebody can sell yeah. you. But I, I see it at work in America in a way that I'm trying to elucidate. No, I came out of listening to Ultra thinking, mm, this is, you've made a case there for why this is, or there is a peculiar American dimension here that and the recurrence and things about the um the appeal of it particularly to the country that had a blank imagines itself having had a blank slate and and so on so what you said before about going back to some sort of untainted new new beginning i think other you know old countries like the one i'm sitting in have that's less of a fantasy it's not non-existent but i think it's Less of a one. But just with the thing with now, um, I, I wondered about this listening to it too, which is the defences we have against it there. You know, the Americans now can think, well, we were on the right side in the Second World War, greatest generation, everything you said. And I wonder if there are defences now where, you know, a former president, Donald Trump, sits with a neo-Nazi and Holocaust denier um, for dinner and the defense now is, oh, it's sort of unserious. Trump is a bit of a buffoon. This guy Fuentes is 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 a sort of comic figure in a way. He grins and smirks. He's with Kanye West, who's black, therefore it can't really be fascism. Are these all defense mechanisms people have to not take fa- not recognize fascism, even when it's sort of knocking on the front door? Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> I think this is uh to me again a really sort of rewarding revelation in history that people who present themselves uh, to the public making these kinds of cases often seem cartoonish and buffoonish. They often seem like grifters and small-time crooks. And in fact, they are buffoonish and cartoonish and small-time crooks. And they do speak in ham-handed and laughable ways. And they also sometimes take over governments. The cartoonish nature of the presentation and the dangerous nature of the appeal do not contradict one another, it turns out. There was a guy named George Dethridge, um, which is a crazy name. Great name. Uh, Great name. Yes, exactly. Helpful when you put the word death in your name in terms of remembering what you're like as a character. He was running, he was running, um, he was involved in hatching a plot that was designed to have 13 man armed terroristic cells set off accelerationist violence in like 50 different communities in the country after the 1940 election, which they knew Roosevelt would win. And the idea was to inspire the anti-Roosevelt right to rise up in the chaos after this terroristic violence and take over the government. He was working with a guy named Clayton Ingalls. Clayton Ingalls was the husband of one of the most famous people in the country at the time. Laura Ingalls was a celebrity aviator. She was a pilot as famous as Amelia Earhart at the time. Her husband was working with the German government through the, uh, the, the German consul in San Francisco to get tens of thousands of dollars of funding to amass weapons for this plot, which had assembled terrorist cells all over the country for that kind of a takeover. So crazy and dangerous. They aren't mutually exclusive spheres. There is a, it's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. And since we 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 mentioned Kanye and 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 Nick Fuentes, you know, when you listen to this podcast, just how you realize how deep the roots of anti-Semitism are. How worried are you about this phenomenon? Not now. Is it a? Is it deep? Is it a social media phenomenon? Is it the Kanye Wests of the world, or is it something that something that we should really be concerned about? I think we have to be really concerned about it. I mean, I think that one of the things that we know about the sort of recurring appeal, not just of the sort of thing that we've been talking about here in terms of calls toward authoritarianism and fascism, but the recurring 
appeal of anti-Semitism and violent anti-Semitism is that it matters who's saying it. It's You're always going to have people on the fringe and you're always going to have crackpots and people who don't have a following and people who are just trying to get attention saying this kind of stuff. But when the microphone gets bigger, the risk gets bigger too. And um, people who are inclined toward nihilistic violence are looking for some sort of validation from people who they see as, you know, mainstream gatekeepers. And Kanye West, for all the other things that we think about him and, and know about him, is a major cultural figure. And for him to be, you know, posting swastikas online and talking about violence toward Jewish people and um, making the kinds of anti-Semitic rants that he has been, it's going to have consequences for a generation, I think. It's not just going to be those neo-Nazis in LA holding up those banners over the 405 saying Kanye's right about the Jews. It's going to be a generation of young men and others who will use him as a touchstone, both as a gateway into that kind of rhetoric and argument, um, but also as a legitimizing force. It's super, super, super dangerous. And I think that's why um, the concerns around Elon Musk and his the decisions he's made around Twitter are not just celebrity and business pages intrigue. It's got real consequences for us as a as a democracy. I mean, just on that, with because you mentioned Elon Musk, I don't know how active you are as an individual. Obviously, your show is promoted on Twitter and everything. But is what what's your read of that? Because that's been such an important forum for journalism particularly actually but for as a sort of space if it's going and I'd, well I'd be interested to hear whether you think it is you know that's going to have a big impact beyond just the sort of as you say the tech pages or the business pages how do you see that playing out since you've mentioned it I, I don't know um I think the one thing that seems clear is that it's not coming back once you've dismantled a company like that. I mean, Twitter was a unique, there, there's a lot of different kinds of social media companies. Twitter had a unique reach and a unique function and it evolved. I think, you know, this is arguable, but I think it evolved in an organic way to try to responsibly handle its influence and reach. And it, you know, overreached in some cases and underreached in others and made some mistakes and corrected. It was a iterative process in terms of how Twitter developed as a company. And when you come in and fire everybody, um, and literally just eliminate the structures that were created to try to responsibly handle that traffic, you can't recreate them because th there isn't a template for how to be a social media company that big and particularly that influential in the news space, which is such contested space and also so important. And so it, I don't, I don't think it ever will be what it was. Now, what it's going to be instead, maybe it's going to be the, the mouthpiece and the um, effective state media for some sort of ideologically specific and perhaps foreign aligned interest. Because it's been noticeable, isn't it, that Musk is, you know, with these little polls of people, they're often, you know, they sound like they're, you know, backing a Vladimir Putin position on Ukraine or sometimes on China. He, I mean, I don't know how to read his policies. I'd love to know what you think, whether he is himself some kind of far-right white nationalist or just somebody who loves giving those people a platform. I, I, I don't know how to read his politics. You know, I'd love to hear what you think. I really prefer never to think about him. Uh, sorry, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't, there's no, there's no, no vacancy for any apartment in my head for him to live, um, which is just part of my own mental health. 
But I, I, in terms of his behavior, I mean, he just seems like your average kind of red pilled middle aged white guy, right? Like there's, you, you see this happen with, uh, with people who aren't notable billionaires that they get red pilled. They get, they become entranced by Anne Morrow Lindbergh's idea of an authoritarian future and strong men who just decide things without input from other people. And that makes it all right. Because as long as you have a strong man who sees the future, you just follow him and then everything will be efficient and profitable and everybody will fall in line. I mean, that sort of boring romance with the idea of a strong man. Again, we've been singing that, that song for a long time. And to f- get excited by the transgressive thrill of posting anti-Semitic and racist and anti-trans and all these different um, tropes that he's engaging in, to get excited by the thrill of being transgressive in that way. Like, it's just this sophomoric red pill guy thing that you see over and over again. So I'm just assuming that he's that. <laughs> in terms of what happens to Twitter and its influence... Again, I, I do think that there's a chance that it just kind of reduces down to a, um, toxic isn't the right word, but a sort of one of these, you know, slightly larger than normal bad actors online in terms of, in the same way that 4chan, 8chan, you know, and, and any of the propaganda outlets that are supported by Russia or other bad actors, um, exists. It could be that, uh, it could also just disappear. I mean, it also has a lot of debt. Who's going to pay that debt? Does somebody buy it who then turns it into a plaything? I don't know. The journalistic space, though, hasn't been duplicated. And I know that there are other entities that are trying to create the same sort of space for the sharing, for for reporters as individuals to share news information in the way that they do on Twitter. I think Twitter was a good broadcasting platform for a lot of journalists, I think the the idea that people were getting, you know, tips and, and user generated content from Twitter and turning that into the news, that's a little overstated, at least in my experience at MSNBC. That's not necessarily how we use Twitter. It was more of a place to disseminate news rather than to gather news. But we'll see if somebody else can recreate that. I hope so, I hope so, because I do think that there's a place for real time news based information, you know, outside of news organization websites. That, that would be helpful to have a home for. But while Twitter is sort of in this free fall, and it really was this, you know, news source or even an agenda setter, when you look at like the map of what is going on right now in the United States and that, that there are a lot of people who think that the news is kind of calcified into echo chambers, right? The people listen to the news that they want to listen to. Um, this reminds me, I mean, you had many conversations uh, with John Stewart, and he used to say always, you know, to talk about MSNBC and say, you know, you're doing kind of the ideological arms race with Fox News. Is that helpful? That reality that we live in, that everyone believes in what they they want to believe in. You can have all the information in the world, but it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. I mean, the the, the January sixth uh, investigation was all televised, but people can still believe that you know the whole thing was rigged and and Trump won the elections. That was a long, well, I, convoluted question. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's more of a topic than a question. I, mean, <laughs> I think that um, there's a difference between, you know, presenting news information and talking about how you feel about the news. And those are two different things and they have two different functions. And I think people do find comfort in hearing people um, express their opinions about the news and sort of emote about the news in ways that they identify with or that resonate with them. I think that's 
real. Um, and I think there's also echoes of that in history. I mean, um, part of the history in the 1930s and 40s in terms of going back and, and looking at that era in history is that, you know, certain newspapers um, were definitely a comfortable home for Americans who thought that we shouldn't be in World War II or that if we were going to be in World War II, we should be on the other side. I mean, there were, there were news organizations in the United States who were a home, a comfortable home for Americans who had that point of view. And some of the great journalistic scandals in the, of the time leading up to World War II involved some of those papers. Um, there's a good case to be made that one of the senators who was an isolationist senator who features in, in Ultra may have been the source of the leak of Roosevelt's plans for the an, uh, the expeditionary force, the American army in Europe, just before Pearl Harbor happened. And that was published in a Chicago isolationist newspaper on their front page. Like th- this stuff, again, is it isn't it isn't new. When it comes to presenting the news, though, um, take the example of the January 6th investigation. I think there isn't a parallel to be drawn. There isn't a mirror image between MSNBC choosing to broadcast the hearings and cover them and, mm-hmm. and Fox News saying, we're not covering them and you shouldn't watch them. <laughs> right. That's that there isn't a mirror image there. Like there's one side there that is covering the news and the other side saying, no, 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 no. We refuse to acknowledge. Let's the talk news about news. Hunter Biden. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's talk about Joe Biden's grandsons, veterinarians, nieces, TikTok account. Um, and by the way, and, and by the way, subpoenas are coming. You know, it's just, uh, I don't, you can criticize me for who my audience is if you want, but it's, I don't, I don't think in terms of who the choir is when I'm preaching. No, no, but the interesting, I mean, uh, Jonathan mentioned this. I mean, you can see these great YouTube videos online of you in conversation with Tucker Carlson. This is 2005. He had a show on MSNBC. You were a <laughs> pundit there. It's a lovely conversation. They're really nice conversations. And and you say this can't exist in the world anymore. This kind of conversation, where can it live at all? I mean, what changed? Did he change? Did the I mean, discourse change? Did, you know? In 2005, had... I mean, this is hypothetical and this is, I mean, maybe this isn't helpful, but in, in 2005, had Tucker gotten on the air on MSNBC and been like, immigrants are dirty and are making America a dirty place. And there is a secret plot by an international cabal to replace white people with non-white people. And you white people better get it together. I mean, if he had said the things that he's saying on Fox now on MSNBC in 2005, he would no longer have a show on MSNBC in 2005. Right. Right. I mean, so yeah, I mean, I think styles change. And, you know, one of the things that I don't do on MSNBC and I haven't done since I've started there at the beginning is I don't put on a Punch and Judy show where I bring on somebody from the right and somebody on the left and say, you know, light rail policy, you guys fight. And then we watch the fight, you know, or and I don't bring on a panel of six people at a time for everybody to say one word. And then nobody remembers what the topic is again. Like I do one on one interviews almost exclusively with newsmakers or or experts or reporters. That's a stylistic thing. But honestly, I mean, to get to, I think to get to the root of what you're asking about, I don't believe that it reduces the value of a news product, um, of a, a, a newscast, of a, of a discussion led by a host on TV about the news to know where the host is coming from. 
you know, I was raised in an era where all the newscasters were the sort of voice of God, objective, you know, ostensibly objective non-entities who absolutely had a subjective take on the news that was manifest not so much in what they were identifying explicitly as their opinion, but was manifest in what they chose to cover and what they didn't chose to cover and who they allowed to speak on it with authority. And that sort of false sense of non-subjectivity among supposedly objective non-entity newscasters um, is something that deserved to die <laughs> um, because it was false. Growing up as a kid in the Reagan era, as tens of thousands of Americans were dying of AIDS and the president wasn't talking about it. And when the, you know, the, the White House spokesman spoke about it from the briefing room, it was, it was in veiled anti-gay jokes. You know, that being covered is as if that was the appropriate, that was, that was the national take on what was going on with that epidemic at the time. You know, that's an object lesson in, I think, the, the inherent falsity and the, the unacknowledged specificity of that kind of take on the news. And I'm glad that's over. And I'm, I will happily tell you where that, where I'm coming from, but I will also run corrections when I get something wrong. I will also abide by NBC News standards in terms of how I present to you the news. And you can fact check me from here to the end of the earth. You can be good at this and honest about this and help people understand the world better while also being real about who you are. I, I get all that. I just wonder about polarization, particularly how avoidable it is if there are if there is, or not that there are two competing streams of news that are transparent and open about where they're coming from, but the fact that there isn't a single forum which is accepted grudgingly, complainingly, but by both sides as basically the fact. And here I'm thinking about it where I'm sitting and where there is the existence of the BBC. Dub, sorry about the dog barking. The BBC seems to me to play quite an important political role in this country as a guard against fascism and the things we've been speaking about. Because, like it or not, when all the sort of noise is over, both sides have to say, okay, those are the facts. And that does condition you against some of the sort of post-truth problematic stuff we've been talking about. And I worry for, you know, as somebody who's been watching America for, for decades, that, that the absence of that is what means there's a guard there against polarisation and against really the things you're warning about in some ways in ultra that guard is missing if two nations are watching two screens and not there's no agreed middle area. Forgive me, though. I mean, in the United States, I would say that we have um, what you're describing as polarized or maybe sort of atomized television news in the cable news space. And then we've got newspapers, which I think are playing the kind of BBC role that you're describing. I think, I mean, as much as Trump and his ilk are, you know, denouncing the New York Times as if it's, you know, as, as if it's the Workers World Daily or whatever it is, I, I would say that the, the great body of American print journalism, New York Times, Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, um, and, and on and on and on, including regional papers, plays the kind of BBC role that you're talking about. Whereas in Britain, you That's have right. the BBC on TV, but your papers, I'm sorry, like I would put MSNBC up against anything that's happening in terms of the British print media. And so- Yeah, and you'd be and yeah. you'd be completely right. That's absolutely right. Our papers are massively polarised and broadcast isn't, and in the United yeah. States, the opposite. I mean, first of all, I think broadcasting is more powerful, but also now, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression that the number of Republicans or Conservatives who would accept that the New York Times or Washington Post 
are a kind of BBC-style neutral rather than also part of the liberal media, I think that number has shrunk so that they too are lumped in with the liberal press. Sure. And, and the right has been making that case forever, right? So like in, in 1972, uh, before Spiro Agnew is forced out of the vice presidency, just ahead of Richard Nixon being forced out of the presidency in the Watergate era, the California Republican Women's Conference is turning up to hear him give a speech where he's saying, I will not resign if indicted. I will not resign if indicted. And they all turn up, all these Republican women, in the early 70s when the technology for recording things was not that handy. They're all turning up with their like boombox tape recorders to record his speech at that event because the media is the enemy of the people and the media is not going to play the important parts of what Spiro Agnew says. And so they're going to circulate it amongst themselves because the media is evil. And, you know, that's Agnew is famous for the nattering nabobs of negativism, criticism of the U.S. media. But his whole job in the Nixon administration was to make the American public believe that the media, not some specific partisan part of the media, but the media writ large, that journalism itself is a left-wing cabal. And you have seen, you see that in, I mean, that's been a right-wing case against the media as long as there's been a right-wing and there's been a media. Um, The idea that the um, objective, professionally reported presentation of facts about the world is somehow dangerous to one side of the political spectrum I mean, it's part of why I'm a liberal. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I'm listening to this conversation. He, um, I, since my day job or night job is still to anchor the evening news on Israeli television, um, this is all very interesting, especially the question of objectivity, because when you try to be objective, I think the result is that you get flagged from both sides for either being this side or that side. But I'm just picking a thread up to ask on a personal note, because you kind of scaled down that nightly appearance after almost 15 years, uh, I wonder if there's still that kind of rush of live television every evening. I mean, you do it once a week now, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, but do you still yeah. feel that? Um, Are you asking for a friend, Yoni? <laughs> <laughs> really just... There's a small milieu of people who are interested in this uh, question. I'm one of them, so I'm just wondering. When you are you saying does it feel it different? Does it feel different to do it when I when I do it one night a week? Does it feel different than it did when are, I was doing it? Do you it miss it? Do you miss that rush of the nightly news oh, cycle? No, okay. no. Um, I mean, what was going on with me ahead of making that change was that I was breaking down physically, and also that I was feeling like I was becoming dumber. Um, that my mental bandwidth was just sort of getting tighter and tighter and tighter as the accumulative pressure of a daily production deadline made me think shorter sentences and smaller thoughts. And I want to think book length thoughts. You know what I mean? Like, I, and I want to spend my time not just reading, um, other reading articles produced for the daily news. I want to spend my time reading books and, and, re- and, and digging into archives and, and thinking things that have a, a longer arc. And I found myself less and less able to do that and therefore less able to be creative. And the adrenaline of the daily news cycle um, and the daily production deadlines can only get you so far. You know, I mean, you can't, you can't live on, you can't live on that sugar rush forever. You can in the short run, but you can't in the long run. And so I knew that I needed to make a change for me, but I love being on one day a week. 
Um, I, I, this was presented to me as a potential option at the, at the very outset of me starting to think about this. And I was like, that's crazy. Anybody who's on one day a week, they have to do something that's about the whole week and it ends up being a magazine show. And I hate that kind of, no, actually it turns <laughs> out you can just get on here one day a week and do what you normally do and connect with people and connect with the news in a way that, um, is still just as exciting. It just isn't killing you. I, I'm not going to recommend it to you because everybody will be very mad at me if you ever do it. <laughs> but I will say it is a very satisfying change. Some people might be very pleased. <laughs> <laughs> Fewer than you'd think. <laughs> so, so since now your new bandwidth enables you to think sort of historical, bigger thoughts, what about the with the big sweep of what you've just done and what this striking point that we began with, which is how it was nearly forgotten? And I think you used this phrase about it being memory hold. And that very pointed and charged reference to 1984, the idea that things are deliberately forgotten. They don't accidentally get forgotten. They're put in the memory hole. What happens then to the thing that, as we speak, has just reached a new stage, which is the January the 6th investigation, uh, you know, also an attempted sedition, where, you know, Donald Trump's been referred for criminal charges, possible criminal charges to by Congress to the Department of Justice. That could happen. And yet, some having listened to Ultra, I think to myself, now it seems so big, but in 10, 20, 50, 80 years' time, are we going to remember it? Could it be that, you know, these names that are household names now will be as obscure as the names that you dig up, you know, Detheridge and the others, in 80 years' time? Or is there just so much so much sheer volume of material now, all the cable hours and the print hours and the website hours and the tweets, that it can't get forgotten. What do you think? I think that stories get forgotten, not because of a conspiracy to bury them, but because it's inconvenient or uncomfortable to remember them. And so what feels great for Americans to remember about the World War II era is going to Europe and kicking Nazi butt. Like that feels great. And so we tell ourselves infinite stories about that. And there are infinite stories to tell about that. And there's nothing to, you know, no reason to take anything away from that. But less comfortable stories about the Americans who in very large numbers didn't want us to do that or who in smaller numbers, smaller but significant numbers, wanted us to fight on the side of the Nazis um, who were preaching to fellow Americans that the Germans were invincible and that there was no reason for us to even try to fight them. And by the way, it wouldn't be so bad if they won. And maybe Hitler was onto something and the way he took on those commies, I mean the Jews, I mean the commies. I mean, that's that doesn't feel as good. And so therefore, we didn't tell ourselves that story for a very long time. Now, I'm also self-conscious about the fact that, well, you know, I am finding it appealing and convenient and interesting to tell this story now in a way that people didn't previously. And I, I think that's because I see through lines in terms of what um, we confronted in the 40s and, and what we're confronting now. Most transparently, the appeal to authoritarian form of government, the critique of democracy, the rise in anti-Semitism and scapegoating attached to people with real political power. Like I just, I see the parallel. And so therefore that story from the 40s is now, has, has appealed to me and I think has resonance for people who are hearing it. The other part of it though, and you could take this as sort of, of good news, as good news or just sort of sterile diagnostics, but losers get forgotten 
<laughs> um, which is, and which so, is a nice, uh, you know, side story that history tells that Tilstery can run them over, right? That's nice. Yeah. I mean, part of what happened with this fascist plot that I read about from the pre-World War II era um, is that, I mean, again, part of what's interesting to me about it is that it involved a lot of people with a lot of political power. There was a paid high-ranking, very skilled Nazi agent operating in Congress, working with at least two dozen members of the House and Senate to distribute the Hitler government's propaganda to American houses, to, to American homes across the across the country. It was a big plot. But the members of Congress who were involved, a lot of them were household names. They were the most powerful people in representative government in the United States. And part of the reason we don't know this story is because they went from top of the heap to turfed out by the voters or by their political parties and forgotten. And that's what history does to you when you end up on the wrong side of something like this. And there is a form of political accountability for you in your lifetime. That's what you want in a way. But it then creates a challenge for those of us to go, you know, dig through the history to find these guys to see how far they fell. That's part of what I love about this kind of work. So what can you tell us about the Spielberg adaptation? And can we all agree that John Roggy has to be George Clooney? Like, can we, do that? can we be on the same page on that, at least, you know? Your lips to God's ears, <laughs> please, please. I would love that. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's a, I can't really believe it. I just, it, it, while the podcast was still underway, I heard from um, Mr. Spielberg about his interest and... Um, when you say still... You mean it hadn't been aired yet? It hadn't been completely aired. We launched the first two episodes on the first week and then one episode per week thereafter. It was eight episodes total. We hadn't gotten to episode eight before I heard from him, um, wow. which was just, which was a thrill. And we actually, you know, there was a bunch of people in, in Hollywood who were interested from the beginning. I mean, <laughs> part of it might have been that, Episode one does start with a plane crash, which is a pretty cinematic thing. Jonathan really was thankful for that. He hates planes. He had to fast forward. Yeah, that. yeah, that was all a little I'm bit sorry. too very, It was very detailed. I do urge my fellow <laughs> yeah. anxious flyers to get past that first opening of episode one because I promise you it's not all about plane crashes. It does get into <laughs> some absolutely amazing stuff. No, there's that plane crash in episode one. You can get through it. You can fast forward to act two of episode one if you want to get past it right away. There is, an, there is a notable appearance of an airport in episode eight in the final, but there's no plane crash. No, that's fine because they're all on the ground. Yes, I love they're that. all on the ground. That's all good for me. That'd be and we do have the weird Nazi flyer, the pilot lady who drops the anti-war leaflets on the White House and then her husband gets involved in the plot with George Dethridge. There's a lot of weird flying things. It's Maybe it's good for people who don't like it. I mean, this is a very niche point, but what is it with these aviators? I mean, you have the <laughs> other one, Laura Ingalls. Laura Ingalls, I mean, yeah. What is it about the aviators and fascism? Uh, there's, and, there's something I mean, going the, on there. Between... I, this is a, this is inside for people who have already listened to the podcast and who have thought about it too much. Hello. But the, the fact that you've got the Ernest Lendine plane crash and you've got where one of our prosecutors gets fired and you've got Charles Lindbergh and you've got Laura Ingalls and you, I mean, there's, there's something going on there in terms of the way that the history is speaking to us here that I don't know. I, 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 I'm very excited to find out. Um, I mean, if Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner and Danny Strong are going to be involved in making this into something that has a, uh, that is visual art, that is a movie, I just, I mean, just pinch me. I can't believe it. 
No, I was going to say it's been a thrill to nerd out with you on this because I've been <laughs> living with it, obsessing with it, listening to it. And now to be able to geek out with the creator uh, of, of the show is fantastic. And it will make a wonderful film. It's already wonderful as a podcast. Um, we do recommend everyone listening to this um, to listen to Ultra right away. Uh, if you haven't sold it now after this hour, then I don't know quite what people are missing because um, it has been wonderful, uh, Rachel Maddell. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was such a pleasure, really. Such a pleasure. We'd love to have you on your next podcast. Uh, bring me back. It might, it might be ultra season two. At this point, I'm still I'm still <laughs> marinating in these archives. There's still more to find. So thank you guys. This has been great. You guys do a wonderful job here. So that was our Rachel Maddow conversation. Confession time. One of my favorite conversations. One of the favorite conversations we ever had on this podcast. Um, next week, another conversation that we love. And after that, we will be back with our regular programming. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.